Information you can trust, stories you can relate to, and tips and tactics you can apply on your next adventure. Hunting, fishing, camping, and everything in between. This is the Battle Mountain Podcast. Hello and welcome everyone to yet another episode of the Battle Mountain Podcast. Uh, really excited to have Connor Brockhouse on the other end of the line. Thanks, Connor, for hopping on this evening. Yes, thank you for having me. Yeah, man, I've been looking forward to it. I, uh, um, you know, I've been following along with your hunts and all that kind of stuff for I don't know the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, I, I love going to hunt South Dakota and things like that. And, um, so it's kind of cool to, you know, watch, watch what you have going on, uh, in a state that I enjoy to hunt also, you know? Right. Yeah. South Dakota, man, here we have it all. It is a hunter's paradise. We're kind of, I look at it as we're kind of in the heart of it all. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it is. I don't know. I don't, I honestly, I try not to tell people about South Dakota. <laughs> right. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a hidden gem, honestly. Yeah. It's like, I don't know where I'm at. Where were we hunting? I, I don't remember. <laughs> amnesia rim, amnesia state. I don't know. <laughs> but why don't you uh, real quick kind of give everybody, uh, you know, a little bit of your background and kind of maybe when you started hunting and how you got into archery and all that kind of stuff. Okay, yeah. So um, it kind of all began at a very young age. I actually grew up in a little town called Lake Benton, which is in southwestern Minnesota. And my dad brought me up at a super young age. I mean, I can remember he would walk around shooting roosters and he'd have one hand holding the shotgun and another hand he was holding me on his shoulder. So I was I was introduced to it at a very young age. And I grew up, you know, kind of tree stand hunting type thing um, in hardwoods in like 10 acres. And I thought it was super cool. And then when I moved out to Western South Dakota about 10, 11 years ago, I just got, I had to change my tactics. I mean, granted, I was still young then, but I was, we, we went from, you know, hunting in tree stands, hunting the same deer to going out West where there's thousands of acres of public ground and you're using your eyes and whatnot. So when we moved out here, we kind of shifted our focus from hardwoods, whitetails to spot and stock antelope and spot and stock meal deer and just, you know, doing all these different hunts, which we thought was just absolutely awesome because we weren't able to do that in Minnesota because in Minnesota, you're all, you were limited. You were very limited. I mean, you could shoot your geese for the year and you could shoot your one deer and your one turkey, whereas out here you get so many different tags. You can shoot all the geese you want, all the turkeys you want. So it was, it was, it was an awesome change, that's for sure. Yeah, I could imagine, you know, going from and that's, you know, that's something that I've noticed living in Wyoming. I remember talking with a buddy from Georgia, you know, and they buy a license and they get two buck tags and 12 or 14 doe tags. And, and it's just like, my gosh, you are, you just can go hunting and keep shooting things. And I said, you know, obviously Wyoming is a lot different. I mean, there's some years you could get two buck tags. I'm not going to cover how because that's kind of like a hidden gym in Wyoming. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, other than that, there's certain units you could go get additional Dauphin tags, but nothing like that. So getting the experience of spot and stock and then making a good shot, it's usually one and done in Wyoming. 
And, you know, unless you were hunting, you know, antelope and elk also or bears or something. But, you know, as opposed to somewhere like Georgia, I mean, you could have 14 animals with a bow under your belt in one season. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Like people, people always say, you know, why do you, why do you shoot so many does or something? And I honestly think it's a great tactic to, um, like you said, learn the ways of spot and stock, just being able to get those kills under your belt really helps in the long run when you're actually up against a big mature buck. Oh, absolutely. And not only, not only just, uh, I mean, it plays into everything, right? Because once you learn how you stock, uh, you can perfect your stock. Um, mm-hmm. People can teach you and help you all they want, but at the end of the day, they're not you. So you're going to learn and stock somewhat differently, not completely differently, but somewhat differently than they do. So, you know, being able to put in the work and, and stock and practice on does and practice coming to full draw, practice either ranging or judging yardage really well practice executing a good shot on a moving target because regardless of what everyone says yeah you shoot while they're standing still but as soon as the bow goes off that animal's typically moving (laughs) yeah yeah so well well sweet man so why don't we uh i think it'd be really interesting to just jump into spot and stock tactics on deer you know i there's there's obviously so many of them um and i see i see you posting a lot of pictures of great bucks um you know mature deer and you know also just big deer and Uh and obviously that doesn't come from not making the right decisions in the stock right you know so so yeah, kind of start I, us off. Like you know, say say you're up on the knob, you've glassed up a deer. Um, what starts go? What kind of uh, things start coming into action once you've glassed up a deer? You want to go try and stalk? Okay, so I'm. I guess I'm a little different than most people. Normally, I do a lot of scouting in the off season, and I know where deer are transitioning from bedding to feed. So I like to be. Um, I usually like to have a route that they're taking when it comes to season opener. And then what I actually do is instead of standing up on a knob a mile and a half away, watching them go bed into an area that I'm not a hundred percent familiar with, I'll actually get the wind right. And I will trail them. I'll stay usually two to 300 yards behind the bachelor group or single buck, whatever I'm dealing with that day. And I'll just trail them for as long as I can until they bed down. That way, when they do bed down, I'm in their wheelhouse. I'm in their bedroom. And there's not there's not many mistakes I can make once I'm that close. Whereas if I'm up on a knoll a mile and a half away, there's so many different things that can go wrong in that two-hour stock that I'm putting on. Whereas when I'm 200 yards away from them and they bed down, then all I got to do is just teeter in there. I can take as long as I want and usually execute a good shot on them that way. But if I am if I am in a different circumstance where I am a mile and a half away, glass and box, or I'm in a new area, just glassing with a spotter trying to find a buck to put a stock on. Once I do find a buck, I would like to go after number. Oh, if you can hear me, just hold up. You cut out for a second. Oh yes, especially even even on public ground. I mean, I'll let them. I'll let them go as long as it's not during the rut. 90% of the time, those deer, those mule deer will be in that same general area. And because when you, when you play with the wind on a deer, on a mature mule deer, 
I mean, you're risking them moving away. You're risking bumping them to a whole new property where you might never see them again. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that's one of the one of the hardest things, in my opinion, about glassing from so far away. I mean, if you're within 500, 800 yards, you know, it's a little different because you can make up that ground, right? Mm-hmm. But I mean, you right. glass something up from a mile away and you watch them bed – uh, you're, especially if it's their first bed, right? You're basically hoping that they stay in that first bed so that you can cut the distance in half. And I, you know, yep. I was talking with, uh, with Ryan Lampers one time I was, I was on a hunt and I said, Hey, I glassed up this buck, bedded him down. Um, I said, I- I'm nervous to drop down into the bottom of this and lose sight of him. He, I was like, you know what? What would you do? And he said, well, if if I ever feel like I can at least cut the distance in half, and then get to where I can glass him up in the same bed, if I can cut that distance in half quick enough, they should still be in that same bed. And I was like, oh, well, that makes perfect sense. And I cut the distance in half, couldn't find him, and got closer, and there he was, and then I missed. <laughs> you know, but I mean, regardless, the the the. The, everything I took, you did to get there, obviously worked because I I got there and he was there, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really like what you mentioned about uh, kind of following them to their bedding area because I would assume uh, with you, because I know with me and and I, I guess I don't know why it wouldn't for everyone else is you know you you watch a deer go into a drainage and when they disappear, it's like hmm. Where exactly are they? Yep. And that's for me, that's always nerve-wracking. Is that something that's kind of nerve-wracking for you if you start moving in on them? Oh, yeah, especially if I'm in an area where I really don't know the lay of the land. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, especially if you're, if you're watching those deer from, you know, a mile off and they go into a drainage and you lose sight of them, then it's super nerve-wracking because you're like, well, now I don't know his exact location and I'm not, I don't want to just run in there and bust the deer because I don't know where he is. Whereas if, you know, you're kind of in their bedroom, you can maybe, you know, just transition over a hundred yards and get a better vantage point and hopefully lay eyes on him again. And, um, you know, in a situation like that, if I wasn't able to lay eyes on them, if they went into a drainage, I'd probably just sit back for, you know, however long it takes to where I think, all right, he's bedded down in there. And then maybe if the conditions are right, if, you know, we got a high wind or something, then I would probably slowly ease my way in there and just constantly be using your binoculars, you know, just peeking up over every little ridge or knoll or whatever you're dealing with. But if you're like a mile out, I mean, it's going to take you an hour and a half to get over there. And you just, you could be wasting your whole day on a deer that went down into a drainage. You lost eyes on him and it's now, now not even there. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's, and on top of it, I mean, you never know what other deer are between what, you know, when they disappear into a drainage, you know, you never know what other deer could be between him and you also. And that's just, man, talk about screwing up a stock real quick, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, when you're, when you're dealing with, um, you know, uh, coming in on a bedded meal or a deer that has went into a drainage from a long ways out. That's you. I mean, that's a huge factor in your stock. You gotta, 
And you're not going to be able to pick up every deer that's, especially if they're bedded down. I mean, it's just physically, it's not possible to find every single deer. They could be behind a little cut bank that you can't see. And, um, you know, they, like you said, that can, that can really screw up a stock real fast. <laughs> yeah. So kind of walk us through, um, you know, from the beginning, a scenario where you're following a herded deer, um, you know, things like how far away do you typically try and stay once they bed down do you then stop and devise a new plan do you try and just get as close as you can and wait for them to get back up and then start coming back towards their feeding area you know kind of walk us through all that stuff okay yeah so you know typically um i usually like to be within that two to three hundred yards um maybe 150 yards. I definitely don't like to get any closer than that. Uh, just, especially when they're moving and they're kind of on alert. And, uh, so I like to stay in that distance and, um, you know, then, like I said before, once they bed down, then, you know, you know, the lay of the land pretty well. I mean, like I said, you're in their bedroom. So what I'll usually do is, um, depending on what the lay of the land, if it's, you know, rough or if it's flat, um, I'll just, I guess I'll just relate my experience this year. So, the buck that I killed with my bow this year, he went into a drainage and I was following him and his buddies all morning long. And I just, I ended up once they went down into the drainage and I saw one of his buddies bed, then I knew that they were all going to be around there. And I actually just, the land was super flat with a bunch of sagebrush. So I just, um, belly crawled. I, and it took a while, but I knew, <laughs> I, I knew, I knew that they would be able to pick me out if I were to, you know, take a lazier route. So I, and I actually had to lay down, even belly crawl. And I had to lay, lay down for over an hour just because all my wind had died off. And, right. you know, the, those big ears on those meal deer, they can hear just about anything. So I waited for the wind to pick up and uh, you just, you work on a situation like that. You just slowly work your way in there, um, belly crawling, walking, whatever, however the land is laid. And, um, you know, just constantly be on alert, using your binos, watching, and uh, especially if you don't know 100% where they bedded, but if you know 100% sure where they bedded, then you can, you know, devise of your a new plan right then and there. And just what I like to do is I don't really have a set plan when I'm following them. Just whenever they do decide to bed down, I'll come up with a new plan with the land around me that I already kind of know because I'm, you know, right around it and I'll work whatever I have to do to work my way into bow range on those suckers. Gotcha. Yeah. Cause I, you know, I hear of, uh, people using that also as an elk tactic, you know, when they, <laughs> when they're talking about, Hey, these, these elk were headed into this dark timber. So I just kind of shadowed the, the herd and then slowly moved in. Um, but I could 100% see uh, why that would work so well, especially if you have already got them patterned like you're talking. You know, that I could imagine that the pattering, patterning portion of your, you know, hunt, I would imagine that that really pays dividends when it comes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah, for sure. No, no doubt in my mind. I mean, if you, if you can put in the time to scout, um, that is, that is one of the biggest factors in killing just darn near anything. I mean, knowing what they are doing and especially those early season mule deer before they're shedding their velvet, they are so patternable. I mean, they do darn near the same thing every single day. So knowing that, knowing their route and what they do when they're, when they're just out doing their thing is a huge, huge key factor in killing them. Yeah, I, I agree. I think 
especially, you know, especially if there is an actual food source, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's a little bit different when you're, when it's, you know, like high Alpine basins or whatever, but, right. um, but at the same point, it's, it's not cause they're in their velvet and they're coming out to this big basin to feed, right? Yep. It's still the yep. same idea. Um, so once you have moved in, um, and, and you got up close to the herd, you got the wind right. Um, are you typically trying to kind of circle around the bedded deer and not obviously not to where the wind is bad, <laughs> um, but kind of coming at them almost at like a 45 degree angle so that they're not looking directly at you or, do you find yourselves yourself sometimes coming directly above or even maybe sometimes below? Like obviously um, it's, it's situational. I understand that, but yeah, yeah. I think each hunter also kind of prefers an approach. Yeah. Right. So, um, you know, unfortunately during early season when they're bashed up, usually you're going to be dealing with bucks facing different directions. And, you know, in that, in that kind of situation, when you're in on the herd, um, I just, I just, you know, what I do in that situation is I play it off the lay of the land where whatever, wherever you think you have the most cover, I don't care if it's, if it sounds dumb and you're going to be going below them. If that's where the most cover is, just take your time and go in there and move slowly rather than, you know, skylining yourself on a little knoll where there's no cover. So you, it, it's very situa- situational, like you said, it just all depends on, um, on the lay of the land you know in a perfect world you're going to come in perfectly behind them but like i said 90 percent of the time you're dealing with different bucks chasing different directions yeah because that that is that is something that is um usually uh, a little different about hunting you know where you're hunting is is the fact that there's rut going on mm-hmm. um you know because like when I when I'm hunting in Wyoming, very few of the units, unless it's a special draw tag, are are even into the mule deer rut. So most of the time, I'm going bow hunting in September, like you are. But yep. um, a lot of the units, the rifle season is in October, whether it be October first mm-hmm. through eighth, or the fifteenth through the thirtieth, or whatever. Very few units have uh, rifle season in to november um so that's kind of a whole different thing that i've noticed um as far as as far as what south dakota has to offer like it's it's crazy (laughs) oh yeah it it is it is a perfect it's awesome because i mean we can and they just did this like two or three years ago where you could where you were able to hunt september 1st because before and it was like September 24th and finally enough people complained to the South Dakota game fishing parks where they changed it but you're able to bow hunt all the way through September all the way through October and um like three weeks into November before rifle hunters even get a chance at them yeah which is which is wicked I you know um but man are those deer skittish when those rifle hunters do get a chance at them (laughs) oh yeah those those especially the deer on the public man they especially the mature bucks because i mean when you're dealing with meal deer a lot it a lot of it um they people get uh especially if they're you're a whitetail hunter and just strictly mainly hunt whitetails you'll go out west and see a two and a half year old meal deer sitting off the road and they're they're dumber than a box of rocks i mean they, there's not much um, <laughs> going on there but 
those those mature mule deer, I mean, I don't care what people say. I think mature, I'm talking mature mule deer, are one of the hardest animals to bow hunt just because they they there's a reason why they get old i mean they know what's going on you got to make sure you're just you're playing it perfect yeah exactly you know obviously i I agree with that i i think there's a point where it's just um anything mature is obviously more challenging um you know i think it's it's interesting to me when people uh and not you obviously but you know people like reach out and it's like well you know whitetails mature whitetails are way harder and i'm like listen <laughs> like a mature <laughs> animal is hard to hunt uh-huh. it's, it's hunted by other predators it's hunted by us and if it makes yep. it through six seven eight years no matter whether it's a deer an elk an antelope a whitetail you know mule deer it, it doesn't matter they they know what's going on. It's oh like, yeah, they're 100%. all hard. Yeah, they're no matter like what you said. No matter what, there's a reason why they're mature. There's a reason why they got big and old. Yes. Yep. Exactly. So let's kind of switch gears from mule deer and jump into a little bit of spot and stock whitetails. Um, do you typically find yourself? Kind of with the same game plan, or maybe I, I don't know. Maybe you're hunting from tree stands. Um, I, I'm so, not sure. So, so with whitetails, spot and stock, um, I what I usually do is uh, just a lot of the times it kind of sounds. I guess some people might think it sounds weird, but I'll drive around. I'll drive around with the spotter on a window mount, and I will because um, you know normally you're dealing with roads that can get you kind of somewhere near the place of these whitetails are hanging out. Because out in the western part of the state. It's a lot of flat terrain, and then you'll have a little bunch of trees where all these whitetails are kind of grouped up at. Right. So I'll just I'll drive around or just walk to big vantage points, set up a spotter, look at them, and, um, you know, once I find a mature buck, then, I mean, whitetails, they lay in a spot where most of the time, I guess, the whitetails that I've dealt with, they lay in a spot where you can usually get on them pretty easily. The only thing with whitetails is, I think they're definitely more sensitive type, you know, type. Agreed. So, when, so when you walk, when you go in on them, you're dealing with more, like they're easier to stalk than a mule deer in my opinion, but they also are more sensitive than a mule deer. So what I do is once I find a buck that's, let's say is bedded down in a little ravine, I'll um, play the wind like I do on everything I hunt. Just make sure the wind's a hundred percent good to go. Otherwise I'm not going to go in on them. And then when I do decide to go in on them, Usually I'll spot them from a road, and uh, let's just say I'm in a spot where I've never hunted before. I'll um, I'll work my way in from whichever direction, usually to where I can use the ravine or whatever they're in as uh, some cover to get to them. And then once I get in their bedroom, I will um, just kind of you know make a game plan from there. I'll be looking, and if I can if I can see antler tips or if I can see where I think. 100% sure he bedded down and I'll just slowly and I mean super slowly ease in on him and uh usually I guess I've only killed a few white tail spot and stock but usually you can get on them pretty tight as long as you got good wind because obviously they're going to be able to hear you and then just be able to execute a shot because they're real jumpy you know compared to a meal there you got to make sure you're on your game yeah agreed I, I I've noticed that too you know it just seems like it seems like they they just don't tolerate as much. Um, no, no, they don't. They don't like. Uh, I always look at it as usually 
the mule deer is going to give you the famous look back, whereas the white right. dog is going to put its tail up in there and take off. Yeah. Yes. That, I, that is, that is a great way to put that. Cause I, yeah, they just, there is no, there's no turning around and looking back. It's like, no, see no, there. <laughs> yep. They see something that's not supposed to be there and they are gone. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, um, one thing I was going to ask about, uh, the, the beginning, you know, you were talking about how much, uh, scouting plays into your success. Um, so I would love to kind of touch on that. You know, some of the, some of the ways that you are scouting, are you mostly glassing? Are you using trail cameras quite a bit? Uh, um, so, what do you do? So, so for mule deer, a lot of the times, so where I usually do my mule deer hunting is about uh, two and a half, three hours away from where I actually live. So it's, it's limited to only weekends just due to work. So what I'm doing is whenever I get the chance, I'm using um, a base map or Onyx, whatever people like to use. And I'll go on there and I'll just look. I mean, I'll spend com- countless hours on there looking, finding what I always look for when I am e-scouting is food and bedding. And as long as they're close together and obviously water and, um, you know, just kind of get an idea on where a mule deer would be. I just kind of look at it. If I was a mule deer, where would I go? And, you know, where would I find the most cover? So I'll find food and bedding and water. And then once I find that, cause obviously it's going to take a little while to find that all in a small area. And I'll zoom in, find a good vantage point, and um, go out there. And then once I do find that vantage point that I'll like, then that's when I set up in glass. And usually on a spot, I will spend two to three days on glassing just from a mile away and spending all day on the spotter. And if I don't see a mature buck within two to three days, I am out of there, especially in the early season when they're staying around the same home area. I will um, – I'll – count that i'll check that spot off my bucket list and i'll go to a different one and i'll keep doing that until i find a mature buck because well if you're glassing for two days you're you're bound to see a buck that's in there you know if if he is living in that area right for sure and i think that's a that's a good point to bring up and i i think it's probably harder when uh when obviously you know when you don't live in the area but i think you still brought up a really good point like there there's a certain time when it's okay, as good as this looks, I'm not seeing what I should be seeing and it's time to move on. Yep. Yep. And that's what a lot of people, a lot of people that I've met get stuck up on a spot. They just want to keep hunting it because they think it looks so good. And I look at, it can be honestly, any time of year, granted during the rut, there's going to be deer moving all different places. They can be three miles away the next day, but I'll just go and go into a spot and give it two days and make sure you're using your glass and spending your time wisely there. But if you're not seeing something that's worth going after, just check it off. Don't be stuck up on the same spot. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I couldn't, I could not agree with that more because this, there's nothing worse than, um, than looking back at, on a hunt and being like, man, I just, I, why did I spend so much time there? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. So, um, with that, you know, when it comes time to hunt a new area, um, actually, actually better yet, let's back up. When it comes time to hunt an area that you've already hunted, but you have other areas 
that are kind of close to there that look good, but you're like, man, I've had success over here. I, I really want to go there. Um, what do you typically do? Do you typically go to the kind of the one where you've, where you've seemed to have success or you're like caution to the wind, let's go try this other spot too. You know, I am, I am always, I'm always game to try out new spots because, uh, I mean, you know, you, you, you never know what's going to be there. So in a situation like that, I would, obviously I'd probably go check where I've had success, you know, maybe go check it out for a night and just see what I'm seeing. But if not, maybe I'll get it, give it a night. And if I'm not seeing what I'm wanting to be seeing, I'll go hit new spots. hundred percent. Go try to find something else, you know? Yeah. Cause I, I find when I, when I'm hunting in another state, um, it's harder because you know typically it's not like i go there and i have a month right it's usually mm-hmm. five days or something close to that and it's it's hard to be thinking yeah let's go try this other spot that i've never looked at in person uh, right. as opposed to this other spot where i shot a great buck last year <laughs> right right yeah and if if you have like um those in your back pocket where you've had success in the past, definitely, I think definitely go check them out for a day or something, you know, cause obviously you, you were doing something right the last year. So you might as well go take a look at it this year type thing. Yep. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Well, you know, Connor, I, I think it would be really great to have you back on and maybe we talk like archery setup, you know, whether it be the bow or whatever else, or maybe be even, you know, do you remove your shoes when you're in the middle of a stock or do you not, you know, cause there's, that's obviously oh, yeah. a there's, big controversy. <laughs> there's, so, oh, yeah, there's so many different factors. I mean, everyone has their own, um, their own way they stock and do things. It's just, it all comes from experience. I mean, you can only be taught so much, but when you're out there in, in, you know, in the moment doing your thing, you just, you're always learning so much. Yep. Absolutely, man. Well, I really appreciate you hopping on the show and chatting about spot and stock mule deer, or I guess spot and stock any deer. Um, I think people are going to learn a lot from this episode, so I appreciate you hopping on. Yeah, heck yeah. I really uh, appreciate you uh, letting me hop on with you. Yeah, and why don't you let everybody know kind of your Instagram handle, and if you have, I don't know if you have a YouTube channel or anything else, why don't you let everybody know? Yeah, so uh, you can reach me on my Instagram, which is going to be Connor.Brockhouse, and that's C-O-N-N-O-R dot B-R-O-C-K-H-O-U-S-E. And um, we, I actually do not have my own YouTube channel yet. We uh, just, we actually just got done filming a turkey hunt in Nebraska a couple days ago. So be looking out uh, this year because I will be uh, putting out my first ever YouTube channel with all my hunts on it. Awesome. Awesome. Perfect. All righty. Well, uh, it was good chatting with you. Yeah, thanks, man. Yep, bye.